Yeah, Father God, we just thank you for this time together. And Lord, we just pray for Kate as she comes to share with us, Lord. We pray that you'd give us uh, open minds and hearts to what it is that you want to say to each of us in our situations, to the people that we uh, lead and minister to. And Father, I just pray your blessing over Kate now. Would you uh, use her? Would you uh, give her your wisdom and insight? And Father, thank you for all the great work that she does in this um, critical area of ministry. Father, bless her now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you so much. And it's not embarrassing unless you didn't like the book. That would be embarrassing if you were like, yeah, she wrote this book, it's a bit rubbish. That would be embarrassing. And no Kate Middleton jokes, which I'm really impressed about because that is rare for an introduction for me, I must say. So no, I am not married to Prince William. Um, I do not have any insider information on any rows between any members of the royal family. Um, I, I'll tell you a little bit about who I am instead of who I'm not, because that's more useful. As, as you've already heard, so I'm a church leader and also the director of the Mind and Soul Foundation. By background, I'm a psychologist. I started out as a medic. I actually trained just down the road at QMC, so it's always exciting to be back in Nottingham for me. Um, but then retrained as a psychologist and then ended up working for the church. So uh, have a feel for my family who aren't from a church background at all, don't have a faith. And my mother, who has still been heard to tell people that I'm a doctor, which I said to her, I'm really, really not. And she said, yes, but it's a lot less embarrassing. <laughs> so there you go. Um, so the Mind and Soul Foundation, if you haven't come across us, you can see our website on the board, mindandsoulfoundation.org. We are a national organization, and we are passionate about this whole space of mental and emotional health. And we're passionate about that, obviously, at the rough end when we're talking about ill health, when people are struggling, when they're unwell. But also, and a particular passion of mine is, is the, the sort of space around well-being. How do we do this life really well? How do we manage to not just survive, but to thrive in the middle of our 21st century world? And how do we, as people of faith, people working in our communities, in schools, um, whatever the context that you're doing ministry in, how do we take that message out to the other people who are just trying to do life in this world? How do we manage the sometimes challenging messages of our culture? Are there spaces that we need to be speaking into? Is there a message, a different story that we need to bring? We're excited about that stuff too. So we are um, a, a church leader, a vicar, a psychiatrist, and a psychologist. So I'm the psychologist. My two colleagues are the other two. And we're passionate about creating spaces where we can talk about good mental health, good psychology, good psychiatry, but also understanding what does the Bible speak into those places? And as I say, not just about what happens when we become unwell, but how do we do this well? I uh, have, have a, a home life as well, so I'm married. I have two kids. So disclosure right at the beginning, I have a daughter who is nearly 15. My son is nearly eight. My daughter uh, will be involved a lot in this seminar through stories, but you should know charges me commission every time I tell a story that involves her. So increasingly, I'm bringing in stories about my son because he hasn't worked that out yet, so it's a lot cheaper. <laughs> Uh, and also because she looks up my podcasts now and listens and tots it up and sends me a bill. So uh, you'll hear some stories about my son, Nathan, who uh, very, very accommodatingly is just entering early adolescence, I think. Uh, one of the joys of growing up with a psychologist as a parent is the tendency that I have to chart my children's development as they go through each stage. So you'll hear a little bit about them. But so I do this talk with probably three hats on. I do it as a psychologist. I also do 
do this as a church leader. I work in schools. I'm the governor of one of our local secondary schools. But also I do this as a parent. For me, this is the most exciting thing, having spent decades teaching and speaking to teenagers and about teenagers, to now have my own in-house experiment has been great fun. And, and as Leah says, having messed it up with her, I get to do it again with Nathan and hopefully do it better the second time round. So we have a lot of fun at home and you'll hear a little bit about that too. What I want to talk about then is this wonderful journey through adolescence, through the teenage years. And, you know, the message that we hear about teenagers so often is so negative. And as teenagers, what they hear, what they often carry from people is a negative story. The teenage years as dramatic, as depressing, as difficult, as challenging. People say, oh, you've got a teenager, good luck with that. Oh, you know, and it's just... Now, let me say, I absolutely love working with teenagers. I love having a teenager. It's just the most exciting phase for me. It's one of my favorite phases um, right through the developmental thing from little babies, which actually I didn't like very much having them. They're quite boring. I discovered that when I had my own. But right the way through this journey, whether I'm doing that as a parent or as a leader. And the thing about this phase is it is all about potential. So the teenage years are these wonderful stages where these, these little people, these kids who, if you've had, them, had the chance to parent them or whether they've been in your growing up through your church or your youth groups or schools, whatever, these kids start to emerge into their adult selves. And it is such a journey of exploration and discovery. It's such an exciting time because they're discovering all the great things that they could hold, all the things they could do, all the things they could carry. They're discovering the truth about themselves, about faith, about the world. Now, this means there is a lot of change, a lot of new stuff, a lot of ups and downs. Um, you never get bored if you've got a teenager in the room, do you? Because you never quite know what the next moment's going to bring. But we do hit an interesting stage culturally for teenagers too. So I think it used to be very much that the most important thing for teenagers, the thing most likely to limit them in life would be like their academic ability, qualifications when I was a kid. That's what my mum and dad were on about. Get your grades, get through school. This is what really matters. But I think we have a generation now who I would suggest to you that for many of them, what's most likely to limit them is nothing to do with that. Actually, it is something quite different. And it is, how do they manage the emotional challenge of life? How do they hold the pressure that they find themselves under? What do they understand about themselves and about the world? It might not be their qualifications that limit them. It might be, how do they cope with stress or anxiety? How do they understand their identity and what that means? And, and we have kids who are growing up, therefore, in a culture that is increasingly complex. And that could terrify the what-sits out of us. Or we could see it as a really exciting opportunity. And as a space where, as people with a faith, with a different perspective, we have a responsibility to speak into some of these topics. And that, that's what I want to enthuse you about today, hopefully. I should warn you, my daughter uses the phrase a lot that things are a bit extra. Who would know what I mean if I say things are a bit extra? Yeah, yeah. Because okay, we're all talking about teenagers so we're hopefully up with the lingo I get a bit extra when I talk about this one of my daughter's messages when she listens to my she's like mum just dial it down a bit you're a bit extra so I will I will try and remain at the appropriate level of excitement but I am excited about teenagers 
So these, what you see on the screen here is a series of brain scans that show the development of the brain through from age five, right the way through age eight, primary years, 12, 16, 20, up through the teenage years. Now, I'm, I'm going, if there's any medics or any um, scanning technologists in the room, I apologize in advance for making a broad statement about this. Roughly speaking, as it gets more purple, it's more like the adult brain. And, and the message you can see here is that really there is a, a quite a dramatic age of trans, stage of transition in the teenage and adolescent years. And we used to think that in the brain, the only time when there was dramatic and significant change was in early childhood, much more at this end, where obviously at age five, we would expect dramatic change. If I brought a three or four-year-old in here now and put them in front of the room, none of us would expect them to act and interact in the same way that an adult would. We would know, we would make allowances, we would try to get inside their heads, try to understand how they saw the world in a way that was different to us because we know it's different, they're kids. But actually what we understand now that brain imaging has become so much better is that this stage of adolescence involves just as dramatic change. Interestingly, there's a bit in the middle that's, that's actually fairly stable, which is the, the age that my son is at. I think it's because he's mostly not moving and playing on the Xbox. That's why his brain's not changing much. But maybe that's unfair of me, I don't know. But these phases before and after are stages of dramatic change. They are, the, the change is in subtly different ways. In early childhood, we're talking about new connections in the brain, massive learning. In the adolescent years, what we're talking about is pruning, fine-tuning, and the development of some more complex areas of the brain to develop that adult understanding that we have of the world. But the message is that this is a gradual change. Have you, have you come to be my toddler example? <laughs> Because you can, no, no, she doesn't look keen. Okay. <laughs> um, yeah, so it is gradual change. And you'll notice that this goes right up to age 20. Now, some of our young leaders will be in that, that zone. Some of the people in the room, possibly even in that zone. We're all just jealous, the rest of us who aren't anymore. But to what we need to recognize is that this is a period of gradual change that runs right the way through into the end of the teens, even into the early 20s. The development of the adult brain. So we're talking about young people who we could make a very easy mistake with. If I brought my daughter in here, you would see someone who is taller than me. She's, she's terrifyingly capable. She looks very adult. She sounds adult. You'd probably think she was about 20. Let's say she's nearly 15. She pats me on the head now and says, there, there, mum, if, if she thinks I've got overexcited about something because she's taller than me. But she and her friends do not yet have an adult capacity in terms of how they understand the world. And actually, as she moves through the teenage years, as her friends move through those years, we need to understand that because the, the easy mistake to make would be to think that she is an adult. And actually, the really interesting thing about teenagers is that if you took her and a group of her friends, they would all be at different stages on that journey. So there are skills and abilities that some of them would have, whereas others wouldn't yet. So it's understanding even on an individual level where these young people are at. What are the things that they're journeying with at the moment? What are the challenges? What are the highs? What are the lows? And, and this is a stage where really the teenage brain becomes obsessed with certain things at certain stages. And so certain things become very important to these young people because it is their job at that stage of cognitive transition to develop and learn these particular skills. We also need to recognize that today's generation of young people do that growing up in a very complex environment. Lots of things that are going on for them, but particularly the development of social media. 
and the online world have just increased massively the complexity of the space in which they do that. And at its best, that is the most exciting place to grow up. You know, some of the conversations I have with my daughter are the, the most interesting conversations generally when I wish I was asleep, and she probably should be, are because she's found something online and she'll text me like, Mom, what do you think of this? This is cool. Look at that. What do you think of this article? Have you seen what this person said about this? It's such a dynamic world. It's 24-7. There is always information. There's nothing that these kids need to not know. In my day, if you needed to look something up, you went to the 12 volumes of Encyclopedia Britannica that we had. Who had Encyclopedia Britannica? Yeah. I, I, my, uh, my parents recently moved down to Nearest, so they went through our old childhood home. And I showed my daughter those books. I'm like, that is literally how big the world was when I was your age. And she laughed and laughed and laughed. Because now there is nothing that she needs to not know. Why would she come to me to ask me a question? because frankly, there are many better places for her to get answers from from me, except that they're not always reliable. So what we have is a very interesting space for our teenagers. And for parents too, for parents in particular, but also youth leaders, teachers, wherever you're coming from. This, this is an anxious time to be raising teenagers. We read an awful lot in the press that can make us quite panicky, that can make us quite alarmed. One of the, the most common questions I get asked in these sessions is, is things around, when should I be worried? How do I know when this is going to be a huge problem? How do I deal with this? And I think parenting in particular but anything that involves raising young people now is complex. There are very few black and white spaces now. And there are some areas that we'll talk about in a minute that are a lot more complex than they were when we were young, frankly, most of us in the room, which makes us all feel about 100 when we're talking about them. But, but it's true. So what I want to talk to you in this session about really is, is five key big topics, therefore. Now, I, I like to do things in groups of five because I'm quite a rubbish listener when I'm sitting out there. I tend to doze off and go to sleep and then I wake up and, and, and I've forgotten to listen. And you know when it's one of those talks where people just start at the beginning and they just sort of talk for an hour and then they get to the end. If you fall asleep in one of those, you're, you're just lost in the middle because there's no anchor points to get back in. So there are five points here. If you doze off, just wait till the beginning of the next one and you can, you can hook right back in. Maybe this is why I like working with teenagers, because my concentration span still resembles them. But five things. Now, these are five areas in which the teenage brain is developing, in which it's different from our adult brain. And I'll talk a little bit about the developmental stages as we go through that. Five areas also where there is significant challenge right now. Um, and we'll, we'll talk on the way through about how we manage those. So here's number one, and this is to do with how teenagers experience their emotions. Now, teenage emotions are one of the most fun parts of having teenagers around, aren't they? I know in my household, if I'm in when my daughter gets home from school, I can tell what's going to happen in the next half hour from the way that two things happen. The, the, the closing of the front door and the dropping of the, sc the school bag on the floor. Yeah, those of you with teenagers at home know what I mean. There's the happy, there's the happy door shut. There's the slam. And then there's the huh, quiet door shut. I almost know what I should do from the way that that happens. Teenage emotions are up and down and unpredictable. And to explain this, really, what I need to do is explain a little bit of background about how your emotions are designed to work. Now, I'm going to go through this quite quickly. Um, Basically, the job of your emotions, particularly the most difficult ones, the negative ones, the anger, the anxiety, things like that, is to warn you when something significant might be going on in the world around you. 
So your brain, the world that we live in is very complex and your brain has to have an alert system to grab your attention if there's something you might need to deal with. So you have a part of your brain that is constantly scanning the world around you, looking for these things that, that could be leading somewhere significant, significantly good or significantly bad. And your emotional system, particularly that complex physiological system we call the fight or flight system, which is associated with the emotions of anger, frustration, anxiety, fear, worry, all of those sort of cluster. The job of that system is to grab your attention because this might really matter. And so what happens is it, it triggers an emotion and, and, and one of the things that we experience as part of an emotion is the physical change when that physiological system is switched on because it changes the, the physiology, the biology of, of many complex parts of your body. The level of things like sugar in your bloodstream, things like your heart rate, hormones and chemicals circulating, it totally transforms your body and your brain. And we experience that both because we, we notice it, because we become aware that things change, we can feel our heart racing, so it grabs our attention. Why am I feeling like this? But also it sets us up in case we need to act or react. Is there something that we might need to do? So if you, if you leave and you pop out later before the evening session, you're going to walk into Nottingham. And as you're walking across the car park, a bear jumps out from behind a car, which is unlikely. But if it happens, your system will first of all grab your attention. But then you're ready. Do you need to fight or do you need to run away? What do you need to do? And then in the meantime, your cognitive, your thinking, your analytical brain is triggered to think and to analyze. Do I need to do anything? Or is this just one of the youth team in a bear costume messing around in the car park? Which is probably more likely, actually. And, and actually, the way emotions are designed to work at their, in their root form is that once that process is done and you've made a decision about whether you need to act or not, just like a burning a match, the emotion burns out and goes away. So they operate very much like one of these. They are like a smoke alarm. I do, who has a smoke alarm in their house? Yeah. Now, the thing with a smoke alarm is... Think about it. Is the job of a smoke alarm to tell you there definitely is a fire? No. The job of a smoke alarm is to tell you there might be. You need to check it out. Usually it's, I don't know, toast or my daughter tries to put croissants in our toaster, which really doesn't work. <laughs> Things like that going on. And just like that, your emotions can sometimes go off unnecessarily. They can alert you when they don't need to. Or you might hit periods in your life when because of other stuff going on. Your smoke alarm's overactive. Did you ever get one of those smoke alarms that's going off all the flipping time? And the teenage years are a stage where because of stuff that's going on, because of challenges that they have as they're growing up and gaining that adult mindset, their emotions are triggered more often and more quickly and more easily. Remember, emotions are triggered when your brain detects something significant going on. And there are stages in the teenage years where they become obsessed with certain things and they become very emotionally triggering in a way that for us they're not. So I sometimes use this graph when I'm working with adults or with teenagers to talk about emotions. You can see there's a, it's quite simple. It's not really maths. Don't panic. It's 0 to 10 on the top, 0 to minus 10 on the bottom. So you can see there's a sort of, um, let me get out the front of it. There's a sort of happy zone at the top there, which is where you chart the happy emotions. And then down the bottom, there's a sort of sad zone. And I literally would say to people, you, you can chart where you are even right now. Are you having a good day? Is it like a three or a four? Or is there something you're worrying about? Are you just below the naught? Now, if I ask adults to keep a trace of their emotions, to keep a record on this graph, maybe over a period of days, weeks, months, which I will sometimes do, this is a fairly typical adult trace. So if you are in adult life, in those sort of stable, 
mid-years where and nothing too dramatic is happening. You're not struggling with anything. Life hasn't chucked anything too major at you. The normal every day. Roughly the zone that most people would chart in is between about minus one and three. Because as adults, we're quite emotionally stable. This may be a surprise to some of us who don't always feel it, but we are actually quite emotionally stable. And we're quite good at self-regulating. So if something does go wrong, usually we're quite good at cheering ourselves up or we've got good support structures in. Um, I always say to the, to the teenagers, the, the good news about us is, is that we're, we're quite stable. It takes an awful lot as an adult to push you into the minus tens. It takes quite a lot to do that. The bad news is we're actually quite boring. We don't experience very much of the eight to 10 zone either. It takes a lot to push us up there. Now, who would like to see a typical teenage trace? <laughs> now, let me just say to, again, just to be clear, this is not my daughter. She would like me to make that clear, although some days. Yeah. Also, this would not be a typical trace of a teenager who's struggling. This would be a normal teenage trace, the sort of thing they might experience on the normal week. So you can see the red line there. So what we're seeing there, first of all, is just a lot more emotion because of the way their brain is developing, more emotions are triggered. And we'll talk about what those emotions are. But also they're, they're much more dramatic. They swing more from the highs and the lows, almost in quite a binary fashion. So teenagers are usually either super excited or super cross or depressed. Sometimes it feels like they spend very little time in that middle zone. And a lot of teenagers will come to me and say, Kate, I think I'm bipolar. Now, this is partly because all their favorite YouTube stars are telling them that they're bipolar, so it's quite cool. But also, they're describing this swing that they're getting and how it feels to be on the end of emotions like this, where they don't know how they're going to feel in the next moment. And, and this is tough. We've all had conversations with our teenagers where we have said something innocuous and harmless, and we have triggered one of these. And we're thinking, what did I just say? I remember there was a moment with my daughter when this happened. They were sat at the dinner table and I said something innocuous like, did you manage to put your shoes away in your bedroom? The cleaners are coming. Some harmless statement. And it triggered an eruption of teenage fury and frustration. It was beautiful. There was full flouncing. She did a few laps of the room. She held the stage beautifully. She ended wonderfully. She articulated herself so well. Finished with a slam of the door, and then we heard every footstep up the stairs. Then silence fell, and my son, age seven, just turned around and he said, what was that? <laughs> And they said, Nathan, that was teenage emotions. Because two minutes later, she's down the stairs, whistling like nothing happened because it's gone. That's how teenage emotions happen. The problem with these is, is that teenagers are much more prone, therefore, to something called emotional hijack. Now, this is a system that your brain has to grab your attention and to get you to act really quickly. If the, if the potentially significant moment that it's detected is so significant, so important, that you need to not waste time thinking about it, just do something. So this is life or death stuff. And so if you think of an emotion like anger or anxiety on a naught to 10 scale, there's a zone at the end of that, maybe about eight to 10, where if your brain triggers a strong enough emotion, you're, you experience this thing called emotional hijack. And what happens then is two things. First of all, it sends a very, very fast message to the bit of your brain that triggers that physiological system. So you get such a strong physical reaction that, that it's almost like a reflex. You cannot help but react. And then the other thing that it does very helpfully is it turns right down your ability to think rationally and clearly. 
So what you find is yourself reacting and not really being able to think things through properly. We've all had those moments, even as adults. And, and we've all probably been aware of them, used quite often probably with our teenagers or children or people who are driving us crazy. That moment where you think, I am about to lose it. You know that moment? That's how it feels to be aware that your rational brain is switching off, your emotion is rising, and you are about to cross the line into hijacked territory. Teenagers are much more prone to this. So we say to them, what were you thinking? And the answer is they weren't. Because they had an emotion that was so powerful, they just reacted everywhere. And they get themselves into a lot of trouble as a result. As adults, we need to be aware, this is often the time when we want to have a good conversation. Stop talking to me like that. Let's sit down and let's talk about it. It's very, very difficult to have those conversations when you're in that place of hijack. So sometimes we need to understand that what our teenagers need best is for us to get them out of the situation so they can calm down. And then later we can have a much better conversation about what happened because they're hijacked. I often say actually the teenage years are a lot like the toddler years in terms of tantrums, moments where emotions have become totally overpowering and overwhelming and they cannot process them and discuss them. The vocabulary is just a bit different. So when they're in those moments, just like with our toddlers, we need to sometimes give them some space to drop. The other thing that can happen with teenage emotions is that when they trigger the thinking part of the brain, they don't just trigger helpful thoughts, constructive analysis of the situation that helps them decide whether or not to take a decision. They can trigger unhelpful thoughts, which produce more emotion, which produces more unhelpful thoughts. And again, we'll talk in a bit about some of the anxieties and worries that teenagers are so much more prone to than we are as adults and why that is. And the problem with that stuff is, is it, it's a bit like your brain is full of kindling, you know, like balled up bits of paper and dry twigs and leaves. So when your brain triggers the, the match of an emotion, it doesn't just burn down that small match and then go out. What you end up with is a big emotional bonfire. <coughs> so sometimes with our teenagers, things happen and, and they react with a huge emotional intensity. And, and this might last a long time. Emotional bonfires are powerful. They feel overwhelming. And they also smolder. You think they've gone out, and then it turns out they were still smoldering away. They can flare up again. And the temptation for us as adults is to say, you are so overreacting. Stop being so dramatic. This isn't even that big a deal. But the thing is, for them, it feels like that big a deal because their brains are telling them it is. So we have to help them hold those emotions, sometimes questioning them and helping them to do that. Recognizing that emotions aren't always fact. Just because you feel like this is a disaster doesn't mean it actually is. But we, we also need to recognize that for them, that is how it feels. Because our teenagers are experiencing those emotions without the adult emotional maturity that we have, without the full toolkit of how to deal with those emotions. One of their jobs as teenagers is to figure out, what do you do when you feel like that? How do you hold anxiety? What do you do when you are that frustrated? One of our jobs as adults around them is to model really well how to manage emotions or when we've modeled them really badly to admit it and discuss it with them because none of us are great when we're super frustrated, right? Because they do need to learn how to manage them. But we must be aware that they're experiencing them in a different and more powerful way than us. One of the most important jobs that I would say that we have with teenagers in general is the ability to hold what they're going through without panicking. And sometimes teenage emotions can look very dramatic, very strong, very alarming, but actually they're completely, they're normal. 
And they're okay. And our job is to be the people who say, do you know what, this feels terrifying, but it's okay. Let's have a cuppa. Let's talk about this. Let's figure out where this came from. Let's work out how we can manage this situation and, and help them to deal with what they're feeling. So that's number one, emotions. Number two is some really interesting stuff around the development of identity. Now, this is to do with the, the understanding that we have about who we are as adult people. So as adults, we have, a, we have an understanding in our brains of, of who we are, our good bits, our bad bits, what it means to be me, how other people view me, that whole complex network of stuff that says what it means to be you and, and what that means. But we develop that gradually as we go through childhood and adolescence. So children, when they're very small, they don't even realize that they are separate people. That understanding comes in somewhere around age three to four as they start to understand their separation from us as adults. I always remember my son when he was three uh, had a great moment with that once where he'd broken something. And I said to him, Nathan, did you break that vase? Because I was pretty sure it was him. And he turned around, he looked at me and thought for a bit. Then he said, Mummy, you was not actually here, so you does not definitely know that it was me. (laughs) Which is such a beautiful description of what psychologists call theory of mind that I didn't even shout at him because it was that exciting. That's, That's his recognition. That actually, he's got a separate mind to me. It's the very start of understanding identity because once you understand that you're separate, you start to think about, well, who am I? And through the primary years, children start to absorb information. They're like sponges from mostly the significant adults around them that tell them things about who they are. Are they funny? Are they clever? Are they sick? All these little messages that they get. And and children, because of that stage that they're at, they are basically what we call egocentric. So cognitively speaking, the world revolves entirely around them. They don't have the cognitive capacity to view the world from other people's perspectives, really. They're aware that you have a perspective, but they can't really put themselves in your shoes. Now, I know we all know adults who do this too, but the children have no excuse. This This is the developmental stage that they're at. Now, what happens that's very interesting is as they enter the adolescent years, they come out of that egocentric haze and start to develop the ability to understand other people's perspectives on them. And this influences the development of all sorts of things, like self-esteem, for example. So this is a a Trivial Pursuits uh, board piece. Uh, I don't know who has played Trivial Pursuit. When I talk to teenagers, I have to watch for these things because recently I was talking to a group of teenagers and started talking about this and realized blank expressions, and none of them had any idea what I was talking about. And I actually bought my daughter Trivial Pursuit for Christmas as a result, just so that she could enjoy the agony of nobody being able to answer a single question. (laughs) So we play for several hours, and then she's like, this game sucks. And I'm like, I know, isn't it great? And we put it away. (laughs) But the point of Trivial Pursuit, apart from experiencing frustration, it's, it's good for that, is that you start out with a framework, and that's what happens in the primary years, is that you're understanding the basic framework of your identity and your self-esteem. Like, roughly speaking, who am I? And how do I fit into the wider world, my family, my school, my mates, those sorts of contexts? Then in the adolescent years, as their understanding starts to become more sophisticated, you're, you're filling in the pieces of cheese, you're filling in the gaps about who you are. So sometimes things have happened in younger years that are challenging, but they don't actually come out until the teenage years because it's only when you're trying to get the piece of cheese in that you realize that actually the, the foundational structure is, is skew-if or has got some gaps and challenges in it. Adolescence is a significant stage in understanding who you are. 
And perhaps the most common cry around identity in adolescence is this one. It's, I don't know who I am. Teenagers will say to me, I feel like I'm a different person every day. I'm a different person in this context. I'm a different person at school to what I am at home. And I'm a different person again in church. Like, what does that even mean? And I will say to them, that is totally normal and really healthy. The job of a teenager, particularly in mid-adolescence, which is where most of this happens, so that's roughly 13 through 15, but there's quite a lot of variation when kids hit this, is to try out different versions of who you are, to, to figure out what works for you, what feels right, who are you, what do you enjoy, what do you not enjoy, and how does that impact the world around you? The fun stuff for us is we don't know which version of those teenagers we're going to get on any given day. So that's great, isn't it? So my my daughter in our church, she's done a couple of speaking things with me now on stage. She's very good at it. But it's always slightly anxiety-provoking because it's probably fine. But there might be one out of five versions of her that that would be quite bad to give her a microphone and push her in front of our church. We don't quite know, do we, which one we're going to get, and neither do they. What's interesting, of course, as well, is a social media world where now not only do they have a real-world identity, but they create multiple identities for themselves online. We all do it, too. You look at my Instagram, I look a lot more impressive on there than I do in real life. Trust me. My daughter's like, seriously, you do not post a lot of what goes on in our life. I know. Now, if we do that as adults, think about the teenagers who have this choice around what do they present? What's the identity? They don't know who they are, and I know I'm doing that, and it's fine. They're still exploring it. And and I would say, as a psychologist, we're seeing some fascinating trends developing amongst this generation in how they use those spaces to explore identity. So most of, uh, most of my daughter's friends, they, 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 many of them follow me, which is, which is quite nice, I think. Um, but I, my Leah was saying, of course, that's not, that mostly it's not their real accounts. One of them, the other day, she's like, oh, that actually is her real account. Like, that's a surprise. And I'm like, oh, that's interesting. What do you mean about that? And so she's saying, well, most people have more than one mum. They've got one that their parents follow. And, <laughs> and then they've got the one their friends follow. And then they've got and then maybe private, then they've got a public one, and there might even be another one that's totally secret and that only a few people know it's them because it's a fake name, and they play with identity, which in some ways is really healthy and very interesting, and we had an interesting chat about it, but they do get themselves tied in knots sometimes because they're then trying to maintain so, different, so many different versions of who they are. So that natural, healthy identity confusion has become more complex. And for those who are struggling with something, that becomes a lot more complex because it's lived out in many different realms. Roughly speaking, what you're seeing in identity formation is three different concepts. There's who you think you are, but there's also these other two. There's the sense of who do you think other people think you are, and then there's this thing of Who do you think you should be? What should you be like? Is it okay that you are the person that you think you are? And wherever there's mismatch between these three, what psychologists we would call dissonance, that will trigger emotional anxiety, distress, things like that. And so a degree of that is normal in the teenage years because these are all changing all the time. That's healthy. So it's normal for them to ask questions, to sometimes feel anxious. What will people think of me in this space? Those sorts of questions. But the more complex the context of teenagers growing up in, the more capacity there is for this to be tricky. And in essence, what they're asking as they come out of that egocentric phase is, am I normal? 
suddenly they become aware that other people have perspectives on them and they're asking this question, Who, what does it mean to be me? Is that okay? Am I, am I normal? Is, is the version of me that I understand to be the real me, is that okay? Is it acceptable? Does it fit? And this can be the stage, therefore, where things suddenly dramatically change. So my daughter, she, she, when she was a kid, when she was my son's age, she was a big actress, very into drama, and she actually is again now. Loads of performing, love to do it. She hit age 11 and almost overnight became cripplingly shy. Just she couldn't stand it. If she felt like people were looking at her, she would get so anxious and, and, and almost quite distressed about it. And people would say to me, what's wrong with her? And I would say, Nothing, nothing's wrong. This is, this, is, this is adolescence. She's just, it's such a dramatic change for some of them. They literally feel like they're living in a spotlight. Like everybody has opinions on me. Everybody's watching me. My daughter, the church kid, everyone knows who she is. She calls herself a PK, pastor's kid. Everyone has an opinion on her, she feels like. That was particularly challenging for her. And it's interesting how this can affect them. I remember there was a time when she was uh, year seven. She had to go to school. We just moved back. We didn't help her because we lived in France for a bit. We changed countries at this stage, so we did slightly make it a lot harder. There you go. But so we've just moved back. She's in a new school in a new class, and she's got um, home ec, only they don't call it, what do they call it, food science at school. So she's got a bag of ingredients, and she forgets them. So she's left. She's gone to school. She's left them behind. I've got to be at work, so I've got a 9 o'clock meeting. So I say to my husband who's working for him, like, can you, can you go after her? She'll be walking up the hill to school. Can you give her her ingredients? Because otherwise she's going to be really stressed when she realizes she forgot them. Later when I'm at work, I, I give him a call saying, um, did you manage to find her? He's like, no, it's really weird. Because he was on the bike taking my son to school, who was by then would have been, what, five? In, he was in reception. And so he's, like, he's got Nathan on the back of the bike. He says, we went up and down that road and we couldn't see her. And he says, we were calling her and we were looking and we did a couple of times. Couldn't do it. He says, so in the end, I left it at reception. It was all fine. Hopefully she'll get them. Later in the day, she comes home. And I'm like, mate, what happened then? Daddy and Nathan went up and down the road calling you, looking at me. She said, I know, she said. I had to hide in a hedge. <laughs> She's like, do you have any idea how embarrassing that was? And I'm like, oh, okay, yeah, I can see that. She's like, my friends were there. There was teachers. Anyway, and to this day, the really amusing thing is my husband still doesn't know that story. And I tell it all the time in sessions like this. So one of these days, he will listen to one and I will get some texts. Anyway, <laughs> at this stage, teenagers also become very prone to anything that gives them a strong sense of identity because they don't know who they are. So this is where you'll see things like gang culture or trends around like TV shows, music, whatever it is. If it tells you everything, all the better. So you thought until this stage you were raising an individual who thought for themselves, who didn't follow the crowd, and suddenly they turn into a carbon copy of every other kid in their tribe. But that's mid-adolescence. It's actually very hard at this stage to be the person who stands out, who's different. I, I see sometimes kids who, for whatever reason, they do stand out as different, and I'm always aware that's going to be tough in this phase. It'll be, it may be great when they're older, but in this phase, it's hard. And they are prone to this. So we know that things that do give them that tribe are much more influential on teenagers, whether that is a gang that you'd rather they didn't get involved in, or whether it is the pictures in the magazines that tell them that they should be able to be a size zero. We know that teenagers at this stage are much more influenced by those things than we would be as adults, because, because we have a more stable sense of who we are. The other thing we know that affects them a lot more is comparison, which, if we're honest, affects 
some of us a lot as well as adults, it's hard not to sit on social media and to compare yourself to the other people you see. The problem for the teenagers is they don't know what's real and what isn't yet. So when they look at those Instagram photos that all their mates are posting, it's hard for them to realize that that's not real life. They can feel like they measure up very poorly compared to what they're looking at. And we have to help them journey and understand all these complex things. Here's another identity-related uh, craze which I'm seeing developing in quite a worrying way with teenagers, and it is around wellness and illness. So one of the tribes that is around at the moment, for good reason, is one around mental and emotional illness. Because we have worked so hard to talk more about these things and to break down stigma and stereotypes, there has become quite a strong tribe, a culture for those who are struggling with their mental and emotional health. And I'm seeing increasingly teenagers who only ever talk about emotions and mental health in terms of illness and are drawn very much into a world which is actually quite enticing. If I'm anxious about an exam and I can then self-identify with people who have anxiety as a disorder, that, that feels like quite a comfortable space to be in. But, but it's not always speaking life for those young people who may just be experiencing normal levels of anxiety around life's challenges. So we need to talk about these things and help them understand, and we need to make sure that we're talking about wellness and health as much as we're talking about illness. We need to be careful about the tribes and the cultures that our teenagers are getting drawn into and help them understand why those things are so enticing. And number three in my set, therefore, is to talk about anxiety because it is such a huge topic with our teenagers, not just with our teenagers. I'm actually speaking on anxiety in the next session in the main auditorium, so I won't bang on about the specifics too much now. <clears throat> but if you talk to teenagers and young people or teachers or youth workers, you will hear inevitably about anxiety very quickly in the conversation. And what we're seeing is a pattern where even what I would call everyday normal anxiety is becoming seen as disorder and illness. Teenagers who all the time are coming up to me saying, but I, I can't do that, Kate, because I have anxiety. And the thing is, the thing is, anxiety is a normal human emotion. If we didn't have it, we would be in big trouble. My seven-year-old son could use a little more anxiety, frankly. I've seen him crossing the road. So we need to, there's a tension in how we understand these emotions. And whilst I understand posts like this, my daughter will tell you that I get quite ranty when I go on Facebook and things like this are the sort of thing that make me quite ranty. I understand this message for someone who's struggling with anxiety that has started to feel very overwhelming, very frightening, very difficult. But high-functioning anxiety is just human. I, we all have high-functioning anxiety because otherwise you, you wouldn't be human or you should probably get yourself to somebody who can do you a brain scan to find out why you're not experiencing it. We all experience anxiety. So I say to teenagers when it, all the time, anything in life that's worth doing will trigger some anxiety because your brain will want to tell you it's significant. So if our only message that we teach about anxiety is how to avoid it, then we get them caught in a loop that is very unhelpful. What we need to do is help them learn how do you hold anxiety? How do you manage it? What do you do in those moments? Because we all have them when for some reason something catches you and, and it freaks you out. I, I had it happen the other day, just totally inexplicably, really. I was out doing a speaking thing. I just finished the end. I was probably tired, probably had too much coffee. I got an email and it just, it just caught something in me. You know how that happens? And in the end, I phoned a friend. I'm like, mate, can, you just, can we just chat? Can you pray? Because I'm, I'm really freaking out and I know it's irrational. 
I know this is okay, but it's really... What do you do in those moments? We have to teach our teenagers how to handle them. Because the risk with anxiety is that if all we learn to do is to run away from it, it doesn't get smaller, it gets bigger. Because your brain just learns that the only reason the bad thing didn't happen is because you ran away. So next time you have to run away again. And if you ever hit a a moment where you can't run away, the level of anxiety your brain is going to trigger is going to be massive. Because it started to believe that running away is essential. So anxiety is like a forest fire. It grows and spreads very, very quickly. And for young people whose emotions are that much more powerful, even more so, we have to help them to hold it confidently. So what we need to do is help them to learn how do you cheerlead yourself in life's anxious moments when there is a challenge that is difficult that will require something of you. Remember, they don't know who they are. Teenagers are learning and growing their confidence. And what they need is good enough confidence to start giving things a go. Because then every little thing they do, they learn something about themselves. And gradually their confidence will grow as their sense of identity and their understanding of themselves grows. But if they get tied up with the anxiety, the risk is they never leave where they started from. And we have to help them to take those early steps sometimes to help them learn how do you hold anxiety? How can you manage not to be scared by it? How can we help them to do the things that we know they can do, release what they're carrying? That's our challenge as the adults. So that's anxiety. Two more quickly before we um, finish off. So number four is the hugely complex world of sex and relationships. Now that we're in the 21st century, this has become so much more complicated than it used to be. I was saying to my daughter the other day, gosh, my life was so simple when I was her age. It was just basically around which boy did you want to snog first? That was basically it. And believe me, the the list wasn't very big of people who I might have been choosing from. It was a simpler world. Now what we have is a situation where teenagers and young people are experiencing a huge amount of complexity and some very powerful messages from various different spaces that want to talk to them about what they should be feeling, should be experiencing and should be doing. Now, we need to understand as context for this that this is a stage where, in terms of their brain development, they are biased to obsess about relationships. So one of the bits of the brain that's developing are the frontal lobes here. And these are the areas that control all of your social emotions and your social interactions. And the more complex emotions like love and jealousy. And literally in mid-adolescence and particularly late adolescence, your teenagers are starting to experiment with what will become the adult relationships that, frankly, parents in the room, they will replace you to a significant extent. So your teenagers' jobs as they journey through mid-adolescence and definitely into late adolescence is to start to detach from you as parent, to move into the world, to develop adult-to-adult relationships that will sustain them doesn't mean they never talk to you but your relationship with them changes and so we'll see them start to try out these friendships we'll see them get it wrong and we'll see that develop so my son aged eight he's he's early adolescence his obsession is he wants to be in a big tribe of people who look exactly the same as him they think exactly the same as him. They support the same football team as him. It's very important to get it right. He came home from school the other day. He said, Mummy, this Jesus thing. So I'm like, yeah, always an interesting start to a sentence. He's like, he said, thing is, Mummy, how does you decide which God to support? <laughs> I said, because my mate Rishan, he does support the Muslim God. But we support the Christian God. How did we decide? And I'm like, mate, it's not football. 
This is not like Liverpool or Man United. So we had to have a whole conversation. But his thing is he wants to be the same. He would like the world to be that simple because he's early adolescence. Mid-adolescence, you start to see the change into more intense one-to-one friendships, more difference coming out. And at some point, what you'll see naturally for most young people is the development of some very intense one-to-one friendships. They could be cross-gender, they could be same gender. It doesn't matter. The thing is, is their brains are practicing with these really intense supportive relationships. So my daughter has a bestie who's lovely and they're such great mates. They are so close. They are always talking to each other, always in somebody in one or other's house. What's interesting now is that they grew up in a context where the minute that happens, questions are immediately asked about sex and romance, no matter what the gender balance is in those relationships. So very soon when my daughter developed her bestie relationship, there were people saying, are you a couple? And, and, and I, I kind of grieved for a stage when you could just be mates and it wasn't that complex. So on the good days, it feels like the changes in how we understand things like gender and sexuality, that that should open opportunity. On the bad days, it feels like all relationships are now weighed down with the weightiness. It's, it's difficult. And we have to help teenagers to navigate this stuff, the complexity of their understanding of gender. My daughter and most of her friends would say that there is no such thing as just male or female. It's not binary. Most people are somewhere in between. My daughter has friends who would identify in various places along that line, some of whom would be experimenting or would say that they don't have gender. My daughter, she she wouldn't say this now, but a couple of years ago when we were talking about this, she said to me, the thing is, Mum, if I could choose to be anything but female, why wouldn't I? This is the world our teenagers are growing up with. And they have that option if they want to as they're exploring identity. We have to understand how that interlinks with sexuality. Again, where not only are there many options, but they are encouraged to experiment. So the message that my daughter and her friends hear is, you should try this stuff out. If you have a bestie you're that close to, as Leah said, we probably should be kissing. Now, nobody's directly said that to her, but that's the message her culture gives. And she has friends at age 14 who've already had relationships with both boys and girls who have already crossed. They think they're with... So I said about one of Leah's friends the other day, I was like, oh, I thought, I thought she identified as gay. Does she, does, does she see herself as bi now? And Leah's like, she does not know what she is. And I'm like, no, bless her. She's not supposed to. She's 14. And the challenge is is that they are being pushed into making some big decisions and big statements that trigger a lot of emotion when actually they're still developing. Our research tells us that most young people who experience the same-sex friendship that becomes that intense, most of them that will turn out to be part of of a heterosexual identity. It's at least 75% if you look at the stats, but we're still understanding it in the context of this generation. But many of those young people now will immediately ask questions about their sexuality and experiment. And, and whatever you think about that in terms of theology, let me tell you, it triggers a lot of anxiety, a lot of emotional distress, a lot of complexity. So we need to create some spaces they can talk about that stuff. We need to find people that they can come to and have the conversations. We need to preempt some of those conversations where we can because it's very, very complex. So that's number four. Number five, the last of my five, if you're keeping count here, is about risk-taking. Now, let me tell you, this is the last cognitive skill to develop in 
the development of the teenage brain. It is another frontal brain skill. Your frontal lobes control a lot of things around impulse control, motivation, all of that heady mix of stuff. So how do we decide what we want to do? How do we make good decisions about what we want to do, when we want to do it? And the most complicated decisions are where something I'm going to do now is going to have an impact or an outcome later. It could be just a little bit later this evening, or it could be next week, or it could be years down the line. And that adult ability to understand risk-taking and to make good decisions in the context of future outcomes is one of the last things to develop in the frontal lobes. It has been demonstrated that even young people in their late teens, early 20s don't have this down to a fine art yet, not to the same degree that, that adults do. So you might see this in a variety of ways, and kids develop at such different levels on this. So it may be simple things like, can they set an alarm and get themselves out of bed? Again, some of us know adults who struggle with that. Some teenagers have this sorted. My daughter, her personality, she is her father's daughter. She is on it. She's got it nailed. She's more organized than I am. Other teenagers, definitely not. They might struggle more with this. The thing is, is it also affects much more serious things because it does affect decisions that they make around impulses, around things that maybe they shouldn't do, bad decisions. And our job as adults around them is to help them learn from that, help them hopefully not make any really bad decisions. But also, we need to give them space to, to make some bad decisions because that's how they learn. So our job is to enable them to grow these adult skills, and that's really hard. That's particularly hard in a world that is increasingly complex, where some of the things they're being presented with day in, day out are sufficiently risky that everything in us just wants to protect them from them, make sure that they never experience those things. If we could control everything in their world so they never had to make those decisions, sometimes we would. But actually what we need to do is, is give them the tools and the skills that they have to hopefully make those decisions well, to create a space they can always come back to to discuss things. And be aware that that might not be you, because part of their job, if you are mum or dad, part of their job is to detach from you. So to make sure they know, I'm always saying to my daughter, who would you talk to if you couldn't talk to me? Who are the reliable people you could go to? Who could you phone if you needed to in a moment? Because you might not want to phone me. And actually, we're, we're good mates. She does still chat to me about most stuff. But like I said to you earlier, we say to our teenagers, what were you thinking? And the risk is they weren't thinking at all because they don't think about why they need to study for you know, for the physics test today, because otherwise they will cry for a day and a week when they get the result back and they failed it. Or why actually smoking that random thing that someone passed around at the party is probably not the best idea that they've had today. Or drinking the half bottle of vodka that's going to land them in A&E later on that evening. These are the sorts of decisions that teenagers often make impulsively. They tend to go for things that feel like fun, because why wouldn't you? You're 15. That's what life is all about, having fun. So we need to help them to make those decisions well and be aware that they might not. We need to be aware that a lot of the pressure on teenagers now, they, they feel this weight to make decisions so early that influence their future. And they feel like they're going to get it all wrong and it's going to be a disaster. So my, my daughter over the Christmas holidays, I'm like, what are you doing, mate? And she's like, oh, I'm researching the best student accommodation at my number one and two university choices. She's 14. I'm like, are you kidding me? I didn't know where I was going to uni until practically I arrived there. 
And, but she feels this pressure. They're taught, it, so many things are discussed at school. There is a lot more anxiety than there used to be around this stuff. She will talk. She's very sensible. She's a lot more sensible than I am. She takes after her father. My son takes after me, so we're going to have a very different experience with him in the teenage years. But she will say to me, the thing is, Mum, it's expensive going to uni. You can't just do it without thinking about it. I'm like, how old are you? But this is the pressure that she and her friends feel under. They are thinking about these things. They can, there's a lot of anxiety around some of these things. So we have to help them hold these adult pressures and understand that they are not supposed to have it all figured out. They're not supposed to have the adult brains yet. So let, let, me, let me finish just on a positive note. Like I say, I love teenagers. They are the best age group to work with. Let me tell you, if I try and work with someone my age in their 40s who's struggling with something, and they've been living that way for 20, 30 years, it's flipping hard work. You try unpacking your identity when you're in your mid-40s. Teenagers, everything is still up for grabs. So that does mean sometimes things can look dramatically bad. But they often improve just as dramatically with some good support, some good direction. Teenagers have an energy and a freshness that you will never encounter again in your lifespan. They have a passion and an excitement for life, an openness to new ideas. They are utterly amazing. They ask questions that I wouldn't think of. They are forming their own opinions about life and faith and all the significant things. On a bad day, that feels like they're questioning everything that you ever taught them on principle. But on a good day, it's amazing because they're questioning things and they're learning new stuff and they may even make you think. So in, enjoy it. I often say the good news with the teenagers is if you do nothing right, on average, it does get better anyway as they get older <laughs> because their emotions will start to settle down. So even if all you can do is hold your nerve and hold the difficulties in those moments and be the person who doesn't freak out and stays calm and see them through it, Things will generally get better. But even if they look bad, don't lose heart because there is always space for teenagers to grow. Nothing is a done deal yet. So enjoy them. Don't despair. And uh, yeah, good, good luck with the highs and lows, though, because it can be interesting. Let me, let me pray as we finish. I'm just going to say a quick word of prayer. So, Father God, I want to thank you today for the teenagers in this room. And they may not be literally in this room, but they are teenagers who we all represent. They are teenagers in our churches, in our youth groups, in our schools, in our homes. We love them. They are the center of our universe. They are the source of so much joy and happiness. We also sometimes find that they drive us crazy. And they can be the source of so much angst and worry and anxiety. Father God, we just we hold them in front of you now and we just ask your blessing on each and every young person who's represented in here. And I want to thank you, God, for each of us in here too, people who love and care for and hold those teenagers, who see them now, who see everything that they could be and who are committed to seeing them develop into the best possible versions of themselves. Lord God, I just pray that you give us inspiration, that you give us wisdom. Oh Lord, that you give us patience. Because we are aware that we are holding precious people who are images of your divine nature. And we, we want to get that right for them. So help us, Lord, in all that we do, whatever our context with our young people. In Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you so much.